We are going to keep this intro pretty short and sweet because it's going to be a good one and it's long. Yeah, it could be heavy to some people, but I think Kate does a really good job explaining her situation really in a positive light. Yeah. We had the pleasure of interviewing Kate Carson, who shared her story. She started out as a teacher, scientist, and chemical engineer, and her career took a 180 change after her second pregnancy with her daughter, who had, you know, a brain anomaly, which essentially, you know, her brain wasn't working. Yeah, it wasn't you know? fully developed at, at week 35, I believe. Yeah, she found this information out at her 35-week appointment, and they essentially said, you know... Well, I'll let her. Yeah, we'll let her tell the story. She, yeah. So, I, you know, I also want to share with you guys, trigger warning, that there is, you know, a, a later term abortion in this story. So take care of yourselves or if this is a little bit too triggering for you. I know a lot of people are going to have reactions, questions. We encourage you guys to comment, seek support. I will be listing some resources that Kate gave us, including her website and some other forms of support if you need to. Um, There's one with Reddit. And then there's also a website called Ending a Wanted Pregnancy, which also offers a Facebook group that you can go into. So I am not going to give any spoilers away here. However, I really loved when when she was making her and her partner were making this giant decision she consulted her parents you know just for some support and, and what have you and her parents response to the situation kind of got me a little teary-eyed mm. like it's, it's really cool yeah it's, it's it's amazing to to have some parental figures that that will have that support no matter what and yeah so i, I can't wait for you all to hear the details yeah but please you know let us know what you think about it we'd love to hear your thoughts great thanks everyone My name is Kate Carson. I live in Massachusetts and for the past couple of years I've been working as a somatic coach supporting all sorts of love, sex and relationship things, but particularly my greatest passion is supporting bereaved moms and dads as they navigate finding their way back into their body and their life and their relationship after baby loss. So that's one of the things I came on to talk to today, especially yeah. in regards to relationship, is that when yeah. I went into this, I lost my own baby in 2012, mm-hmm. my middle daughter, Laurel. Uh, she was diagnosed with really awful brain anomalies when I was 35 weeks pregnant. And oh, okay. my husband and I chose to have an abortion. Mm-hmm. And even then, even before Roe v. Wade was overturned, we had to travel 2,000 miles to get this care because Roe oh, v. Wade wow. did not protect our right to an abortion at that stage in pregnancy. How did you come across this information? Was that like a normal check-in? No, you know what? It, sort of, sort of. Um, it was a peace of mind ultrasound that my midwife gave me because I just couldn't shake the feeling that something was wrong. Mm. Like I really, and the further the pregnancy went, the more I could point to specific things and be like, the way she is moving is not like the way my other baby was moving. Oh, wow. Uh, something feels really, really wrong. Like she doesn't respond to me the way my other baby responded to me. And so as the pregnancy progressed, I was planning a, a like a, a hospital adjacent birth center birth. And my midwife, which, you know, when you're doing that, you're like sort of trying to go unmedicated, right? Seeing, and she wanted to support me in that. And she knew that if I were like that highly anxious, it could sort of hold up the labor. And she didn't want me, she just wanted me to feel okay. But I was measuring small, which was the excuse she used to get me in. But honestly, I always measure small. That that actually wasn't a huge problem. And when I went into this ultrasound, I went by myself because I really thought everything was going to be okay, even though parts of me obviously thought everything wasn't okay. Other part, the rational part, I was sort of gaslighting myself. I was like, yeah. you're crazy. You're just anxious, right? right? Mm-hmm. I, I had had a bunch of miscarriages, which of course people who've had a bunch of miscarriages get anxious about pregnancy. And my husband didn't come because, you know, it's, it's hard. I find that it's hard for women to go to all of these appointments when they're pregnant, when they have a job, and it's hard for men as well. And the expectation that men feel to be at work all the time is very high. And I thought the stakes were low. So I went by myself. And then they found that my baby's brain hadn't formed properly. And they delivered that news. It was horrible. It was crushing. 
so far along into the pregnancy. Yeah. Yeah. You already had a child at this point, right? Yes. Okay. We had a two and a half year old daughter named Elsie, who's, okay. you know, this was a while ago. So now she's 13, but then she was two and a half and she was at daycare. I, ju- I remember having to go pick her up at daycare yeah. and it was just like all these things like you're, you're in this massive, tr- this massive medical crisis where the world's just sort of crumbling. And yet the child is still at daycare and has to be picked up. Right. Yeah. So this is this is wild. When they told me that my baby was so sick, they did ask me if I wanted an amniocentesis to see if it was like genetic. And I did. I, I got mm-hmm. that. And then after they drew the amnio, they didn't have anywhere to put me because the exam room was being used again. They didn't want to send me back compassionately. They didn't want to send me back to the waiting room where everyone was like, yeah, I get to see my baby today. This is great. We're going to have a baby. Um, so they put me in a storage closet. Oh, my goodness. Are you kidding? I'm not kidding at all. I'm not kidding at all. And they did offer me to go back to the waiting room, but they were yeah. like, we're so sorry. The genetic counselor isn't ready to talk to you. Her office is mm-hmm. locked. And like, so they put me in a storage. Co- it was like desks on desks and like chairs stacked and filing cabinets. And they, they like cleared out this little place for me to sit to wait mm-hmm. for my husband to come. I'm sure that was a brutal 20 minutes or whatever, whatever time. Yeah, it was. It was. It's about a half an hour to get, you know, I I called him from the ultrasound room. They left me and I called him and I hadn't cried when they were telling me all this stuff. It was just like shock denial. Yeah, shock. And I was also really trying to hold it together because I was like, these people, they're going to make or break how this goes. Like, I can't act like a basket case, which is silly. Like, if you get told your child is not going to be functional, like that, it's okay to cry. But I was really, uh, you know, when we talk about stress response, I was in a trauma response we call fawn, where I'm like really sort of a freeze fawn combo Mm -hmm. where I'm really trying to appease everyone in the room. So when they left, I picked up the phone and I called my husband at work. I heard him pick up and I just like, I just fell apart. Like I just wailed like an animal and he was like oh my god kate where are you and i said the hospital he said which one i told him mm-hmm. and then that would like he hung up like i knew he was right on i knew he was like sprinting out of that building yeah, yeah. pardon me if this is not a good question to ask but i'm curious if if you had gone through with mm-hmm. the birth would would your daughter have have survived or would that oh that's a perfectly legitimate question those is you may ask any details about this diagnosis or about my you know our our family values around it that you want we couldn't tell at that moment at the day of the ultrasound they did not tell us what her life was going to be like they wouldn't commit to it until we had an mri the mri was 48 hours later two days of just like not sleeping not eating just total total i was in my head just imagining every single way that it could go when we got to the mri at the end of the day on a friday after like so many appointments with the cardiologist because often when there is one malformation sometimes there are others as well so they were looking for heart defects they were looking for all these things um for her it was really the brain was Mm -hmm. was the problem and our neurologist said i'm so sorry but your daughter is not expected to walk or talk or swallow. And he said, so he gave us the best case scenario. He was like, she may speak a few words after many years of intervention. She may walk a few steps with braces after much physical therapy. Really, we don't expect her to do that. He said that she wouldn't be able to hold up the weight of her own head and that she would never be expected to swallow. Yeah. And I said, at some point I said, you know, this is very, very sad, but for a child who can't swallow, like, we know what we want to do. I do not want to intervene. I do not want a feeding tube. This is very, very sad, but I guess I know how my baby's going to die. Yes. And they yeah. said, oh, you can't refuse a feeding tube on a baby. Oh. And I said, well, what about a DNR? Because her heart might not have been able to coordinate out of the womb. She might not have survived the pressures of the birth. They were going to give me a C-section regardless of how it went for her. Even if I was birthing to hospice, they still, because they wouldn't let me birth to hospice, they were still going to give me a C-section for a baby that may not have survived. She might not have survived birth. She might not have survived the final four weeks of the pregnancy to get to the birth or a few weeks of the pregnancy to get there. I do know one child with Dandy Walker malformation who is nine that is a very old child with this disease my daughter also had another compounding brain anomaly um i don't think she would have done that well i think she would have died by three like i think the chances that she would have lived 
to one are only like 1%. And I think the chances that she would have lived to three are a lot smaller. They didn't give me these numbers. This is from when I did my own deep dive. They just gave me like, here's the range. What do you want to do? Yeah, that was, um, that was another question of mine is like, did the did the doctors or at any point recommend termination of the pregnancy? No, <laughs> no, they did tell me that it was an option. So one thing I hear a lot from women who carry to term is like, my doctor said I should have an abortion. I, I don't mean to doubt them, but like, I think that the way we interpret what's said to us mm-hmm. is very much based in our insecurity about being judged for the choice we make. I was really worried to ask for the abortion because I thought my team would not support me. Um, yeah. They did, but I really worried that they wouldn't. When this is back in the ultrasound, the first day of diagnosis, when the doctors came in to tell me something wrong, one of the first things she said, she said, we're seeing problems in the baby's brain. We can offer you adoption. We may be able to offer you abortion, but we just don't know. And like, then she spent a long time talking about what it would look like if I chose to have this baby. She told me about how the birth would look and how we would go over to the children's hospital. Like, it's not that she omitted that path forward. Most of the time was spent talking about that. But Mm -hmm. the fact that she led right out of the gate with abortion adoption was extremely confusing in the moment. However, however, ultimately I was grateful for it because I knew I could ask her. She had brought it up, I could ask her. When you say adoption, do you mean like, giving your daughter away for adoption? Yes, Yes, that's what we're talking about. With a daughter with the needs that my daughter had, if she had lived, her medical expenses would have been in the millions very quickly. Very, very, very quickly. And so, you know, I'm coming from a place of great privilege, which is why I was able to access abortion at all. I will tell you my abortion cost $25,000. I had a weekend to come up with that. Yes. Right. And we didn't have that. Like we didn't have that kind of savings. So I was only able to access my abortion because I have a certain level of privilege. Mm-hmm. If I had less financial stability and privilege than that, I wouldn't have been able to access abortion. And also, I would, I might have decided I could not adequately care for my child's medical needs. Yeah. And yeah. so women in my position get sort of like squeezed into having to consider adoption for a baby that they love mm-hmm. anyway. Right. And you bring up finances, <clears throat> although that's not something that we like focus on during that moment. But yeah, if you're given that that information, uh, yeah. it's yeah. that's it might not even be feasible for a family. Yeah, yeah, totally. That's, it's that's really totally impossible. Yeah. Like, it's really not feasible. And my friend who has this child who has Danny Walker, she talks all the time about how expensive it is and how like, I don't know how anyone does this who doesn't have a certain amount of stability financially. The the money's important because in the society where we live, money is your survival. You don't yeah. have money, you're going to have a hard time surviving, like food, yeah. shelter, basic, basic needs mm-hmm. are all yeah. covered by money. So the money is actually a really important thing I would like people to talk about more. It's a little bit frustrating to me because the way when people do bring up the money, the way they tend to bring it up is with judgment to the abortion clinics. Like, I can't believe they charged you that much. It's like, okay, this is a four day procedure. What do you think a four day procedure would cost at a hospital? Sure. And like, maybe they could make it cheaper if you weren't always trying to shoot up their building and suing them for no reason, (laughs) right? In a way they're funding too. Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. yeah, they got to make up for it at some point. Totally. Yeah. They can't bill through insurance. I mean, no. I did submit for insurance. So I did take mm-hmm. the documents and submit for insurance. And I have really good insurance, guys. And I mm-hmm. got only about a few thousand dollars covered because they said, oh, you went out of network. Oh, it's no. like, oh. Yeah, it's always something. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, what was I supposed to do? I'm curious how the decision, you know, was after talking with your husband, if you if you both felt on the same page or if, if yeah. there was a lot of discussion that needed to take place. I mean, I imagine there was. But... We were extremely lucky in that we were on the same page. So we right. did not talk about it really. My husband didn't want to talk about it until we had all our information. But when mm-hmm. we saw the neurologist and the neurologist, I remember asking all the things that she wouldn't do. And I was like, what does a baby like mine do? Does she just sleep all day? And he he winced, the neurologist winced. And he said, babies like your baby are not often comfortable enough to sleep. After that, we both got to hear that. We both walked out, we got into the car, it's rush hour traffic, my parents are picking up the child, you know? (laughs) And my husband is such a wonderful husband and he always wants to make me happy. And sometimes that means he says what I wanna hear instead of what's real, right? And so we're in the car and I just said, 
I need you to tell me what you want to do. Like, I need you to tell me first so okay. that I know. And he gave me the gift. He said, Kate, hey, you don't have to do this, but I think we should ask about the abortion. And I was so relieved in that moment. I was just so relieved because I had been not sleeping, not eating. I just felt like I was living in this like deep, dark prison cell, like a dungeon. And when he said that, I didn't have to say it first. Yeah. Yeah. I knew it was what I wanted to do. And I knew I wasn't a monster for wanting to do it. And I just felt like, I mean, it really felt like grace. It felt like light and fresh air just flooded into me. And there were so many times after the fact where it felt very, very difficult. And I felt things like shame and I felt things like guilt and I felt things like regret. Right. But I could always remember the moment I actually made the choice and be like, no, you know what? Like that was clear. That was Mm -hmm. clear. Every cell in my body knew that's what I wanted to do. Right. Um, right. And, you know, it's a values based decision. Different people have different values. They also have slightly different diagnoses and different life circumstances. And I'm not like saying I made the right decision for everyone, but I know I made the right decision for myself and my child. And that's all that matters. Yeah. Yeah. What kind of support or and or lack of support you received from other family members? Well, I'm very lucky. I had to tell my parents right away, you know, when you're eight months pregnant and you are looking for an abortion, it's not something you can tell just everybody because I didn't have $25,000 plus travel expenses you know it cost about 30,000 all told I did call my parents and tell them I told my mom what was going on Mm -hmm. she was very kind she said Kate if I were in your position I would be doing the exact same thing and she Mm -hmm. said I'll talk to your father you know my mom has worked really hard her whole life mostly in volunteer positions so the financial strings are really my father's to pull in my situation and she says that it was funny my dad and I have not talked about this even though we're close my mom said when I told him, he said, this is exactly why they have abortions at this stage in pregnancy, of course. No. Right. Yeah. They, they withdrew from their um, retirement money early. You can do that to cover a medical emergency. It, it actually really shaped the trajectory of my career majorly because I was getting my master's in engineering. I was at my graduation ceremony just a week before we got this diagnosis. Oh, so I was like ready to graduate. I was planning on maybe like becoming an engineer, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> um, I had worked in science labs before. Uh, metabolic engineering, chemistry, mm-hmm. very, very similar. So it w- would have been similar to what I had done before. But I was looking at maybe a biotech, but I knew I was going to have a baby. So I was going to like carve out my own maternity leave so Mm -hmm. I didn't have a job lined up right away I was going to do maternity leave and then look for work and what ended up happening is instead I needed grief time I needed bereavement time and so I took all the time that I was going to take to be raising a baby to just like pull myself out of bed in the morning and learn how to function again I ended up tutoring I have always been a teacher a tutor for a long long time even even when I was in high school and I ended up tutoring just to make ends meet but I could work like 10 hours a week and it was enough money to make ends meet so that it didn't feel like a squeeze from that I ended up getting a teaching position in a middle school girls girls middle school teaching eighth grade science and math and from it was a COVID. It was in, during COVID that okay. teaching got bananas and I left yeah. teaching and I knew what I wanted to do because I had been volunteering as a support group leader at ending a wanted pregnancy for a long time, right? I, I started as a support group person, like seeking support in 2012, but pretty shortly after that, I was also moderating and admitting for them. Mm-hmm. And I've been with that group for over 10 years now. I was pour, pouring like all of my free time into abortion activism and abortion support. Mm -hmm. Um, I call it abortion. People sometimes call it termination for medical reasons. For me, I mean, I wouldn't have had to go to Colorado if it wasn't an abortion. So that's a pretty important word to me, but it's okay if it doesn't fit for everyone who's listening. In any case, I felt called to to serve professionally as well as just in a volunteer basis. So I studied with Layla Martin um, to become a love, sex, and relationship coach. And the reason I really focused on love, sex, and relationship is because it's very underserved. People just Mm -hmm. assume that when you lose a baby together, you're going to grieve together because Mm -hmm. like you lost together. My husband and I, so on the same page, he came with me like every step of the way. I'm so glad it didn't happen during COVID. During COVID, husbands are waiting in the car 
yes. all day. And it's like tragic and awful yeah. while their wife is inside the clinic. It's like horrible that they're separated yeah. at that point. But he was with me because this was 2012. Mm-hmm. I was so grateful for him. And then we come home and all of a sudden, all that togetherness just like poof, gone, yeah. right? Because I am a wreck and I'm falling on the floor crying in front of our two-year-old. And he is getting out of bed and going to work every day to keep a roof over our heads. And mm-hmm. I'm looking at him being like, doesn't she even mean anything to you? Like, right. And he's looking at me like, oh my God, is this just my wife now? Is this just my life now? <laughs> right? That's a really scary place for both of us to be. Yeah. So. And, and meanwhile, you're trying to also heal your body from this procedure, totally. right? Yeah. Right. Imagine it's pretty invasive. Well, I will tell you the procedure is a stillbirth. So the the difference between this and a spontaneous stillbirth is that there is a euthanizing injection on the first day. And then slowly, there are two days of laminaria to dilate the cervix. And that is invasive, but it's only like 10 minutes of your day. And then it like slowly does its thing throughout the day. And then on day four, in induction of labor, this baby that I gave birth to was bigger than my husband was when he was born. So this was like a full-size baby, right? So yes, I'm, I'm healing. I'm in a postpartum body. My body is producing milk. I can't take a shower. Mm-hmm. Like I could take a shower, but I can't because it's just too emotionally fraught to get out and have the cold air hit me and have the milk spray everywhere. Mm-hmm. And it's like, it's visceral. It's, it's raw. Oh, it's raw to lose a baby. And yeah. so, yes, yeah, so you lose, you lose a lot of the physicality of the relationship because of the physical symptoms for my mm-hmm. case. And for some women, a lot of women, there's this whole feeling of like my body's the scene of the crime like my body mm-hmm. built the broken baby so i'm blaming my body yeah. even though babies build themselves there's like this part that we internalize that it's our job to build a healthy baby yeah and then like i failed as a woman i failed as a mother i failed my family i failed myself i like betrayed myself this this mm-hmm. is awful and it's my body's fault And so a lot of women shut down, first of all, to intimacy, because like just the site has a lot of trauma in it, because if you got a D&E, like that's going into the vagina and the womb. And if you had a a labor and delivery like me, that's like laboring and delivering from the womb in the vagina. And so like intimacy becomes fraught and sort of booby trapped. But then also the emotional part, a lot of women really like punish themselves. And if they start to feel pleasure, they're like, I can't feel pleasure. I'm grieving. Like, this is horrible. It's all my fault, right? And so they'll back away from it. Eventually, when my body recovered, I actually leaned into physical intimacy. And that was really healthy for me because I did let myself feel good. And it let me feel close to my husband. We were not having any success verbally. Like, trying to talk Mm -hmm. about our feelings was just not working. I imagine we were both just needing more than either of the other could give. Right. And so it was very high stakes, high, just high conflict kind of conversations. I would reach out for connection. I would feel judged. I don't know how much of that judgment was me projecting it because I would look at him and be like, well, if he's OK, what's wrong with me? Yeah. So then I'd be like, well, what's wrong with you? <laughs> it's a vicious cycle, but it affects everything in the relationship. It affects yeah. our ability to be kind to each other and to enjoy each other's company. And it affects our ability to feel like a team and it affects our sex life. It affects mm-hmm. everything. Yeah. So that's why I decided, like, why love sex and relationship for this? Well, I keep hearing women in support group be like, First of all, the biggest thing complaint about therapists is they don't get it. I go to my therapist, she doesn't get it. I need someone who's been through it. Coach mm-hmm. is not a therapist, let me be clear, but sometimes what you need is peer support, which yeah. is why support groups are really important in the first place. Mm-hmm. Second of all, I also hear people when they get to the sexuality or the intimacy stuff being like, well, I don't feel comfortable talking to my therapist about this. And like, I don't know who to talk to about it. I can't talk to my friends about it. I can't talk to my, I can sort of talk to my doctor about it. So there's a big hole. There's a big hole in our lives, which is intimacy. Mm -hmm. That is when things are stressful, that hole just feels deeper and darker than it was before. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, leaning into that physical part of your relationship, did that then kind of crumble out into the verbal, like were you guys able to start talking about it eventually? 
This is such a good question. What the physical intimacy allowed us to do. Um, and when I say physical intimacy, I want to be clear that it, physical intimacy is more than just a penis and a vagina. Sure. I am talking about a pat on the shoulder. I'm talking yeah. about a hug. I am talking yeah. about oral sex. Like I'm talking yeah. about every kind of touch is yeah. physical intimacy in a case like this. Just building up those moments. What I started to notice is every time I tried to talk about things, I would end up feeling worse. And every time I touched my husband, like reached out to touch him, mm -hmm. I would end up feeling better. And okay. so what I decided to do is this stupid, simple method of like, do less of what hurts in the long run and do mm -hmm. more of what feels good in the long run. It's easier said than done because mm -hmm. sometimes you just have to pick the fight. Like you can't stop, right? <laughs> but if you can avoid two fights a week and instead like, give 20 extra touches, little mm -hmm. ones, big ones, whatever, that, that adds up to a real shift in the relationship. What it gave me was this, the resources within myself to realize my husband can't be everything to me all the time. I'm gonna mm -hmm. need to go lean on some friends. He can't give me what I need right now in terms of emotional support. I still deserve emotional support. I know mm -hmm. people who can give that. And what I'm gonna give him is like, total understanding. Like, of course he can't. I don't understand his grief. I don't understand how he can be grieving a daughter and go to work and function because I can't, but I yeah. can trust that it's real. Like I can trust that the love is there because I know my husband mm -hmm. and I can trust that like, this is just the way he grieves. We just grieve differently. So it taught me trust. It gave me enough like feeling together that I didn't, I wasn't always afraid we were going to get a divorce anymore. Right. Because mm -hmm. you're like suffering one loss and like anticipating another loss. That's a yeah. lot. If you can stop anticipating the other loss and just go make out, <laughs> that's better. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then in the verbal communication actually took a long time. What I trained myself to do was to not talk about hard things. And in the moment, that was a really, really good move. But as you might imagine, mm -hmm. 10 years down the line, I'm glad I'm not using that strategy anymore sure yeah right <laughs> but i will so much under the rug before you start tripping on it <laughs> totally totally yeah. but i will say that that's actually what i worked on because when, when you become a love sex and relationship coach you have to work on your own you like you go through <laughs> the thing you're going to take other people through first and yeah. that's what i chose to work on was verbal communication with my husband that level of trauma too i, I would assume that those those little wins that you got to accumulate over the weeks, right? The the yeah. touches instead of the arguments, I'm sure that helped you define when you did have the arguments or when you did have the conversations, they were a little more focused on what was more important than all the little stuff. Yeah. Totally. Because then it, it the the stakes get lower. If I know that I have a way to connect again, mm -hmm. the stakes are lower to feel friction in the moment. Yeah. Yeah. I was reading your blog last, some of your blogs on your website last night, and I liked how you, you made an analogy of like, it's like a soldier coming home from yeah. war mm. and then saying, you know, it's going to be okay. Here's your plane ticket to go do it again. You know, <laughs> that's what, that's what my therapist said. So I had a regular old therapist when I, when they went through this and she's a very nice person but she was not ultimately what I needed because to just be listened to, like I actually am very well covered for being listened to by friends and family when I learned to like actually start using them, um, asking them to support me that way. I got a trauma specialist oh, nice. when I got pregnant with my next baby. I have mm -hmm. the youngest daughter came, I had one more and then I stopped. So when I was pregnant with Lucia, my youngest daughter, I realized that I did not actually need grief help because grief, my grief was very healthy and was integrating well. It was about nine months past that I got pregnant again. I realized that what I had was PTSD. I had yeah. PTSD. And so I found this trauma specialist who specializes in combat vets and he okay. took me on. And that's what he said. He was like, it's like you get home from war and then it's like, here's your ticket back to Nam, Kate. Like, <laughs> there you go. You're back in the jungle again. And that really, I was, I felt very seen. We all know that soldiers experience PTSD, but then also we're in a moment, pop culture wise, where like everyone uses trauma lingo to describe things that are actually like pretty normal. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But it did feel like that. Like there, there, because the trauma lives in the body, the trauma doesn't live in your cognitive mind. 
-hmm. If your body gets put in a position where like sensorially it's experiencing what it did then, that's a trigger. Then you, I started flashing back. I had not flashed back until I got pregnant again. And then I started having flashbacks and it's just like, I don't know exactly what cocktail of things it was, but it was a lot to be pregnant Mm -hmm. again. Yeah. I mean, I imagine that your anxiety of every movement she made of, you know, just kind of checking behaviors and rethinking things over and over was pretty, pretty rampant. Yes. I will say that my, there really is something to the movement thing because I hear other brain anomaly baby moms say this, like, it's not Mm -hmm. just me. And I will say that her movements were normal (laughs) and I was so relieved about that. I was so relieved about that. However, I did not believe she would be okay until Mm -hmm. she showed me. Like Mm -hmm. I went, this therapy was cognitive behavioral. If you went to a trauma specialist now, you'd be getting EMDR. We've come a long way in 10 years, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. But he had me sort of like going, like fake it till you make it therapy is is Mm -hmm. what I call cognitive behavioral. It does help. Like it really did help. So I like was knitting her a blanket as part of my therapy because I did not believe she was going to be okay. But I could like go through the motions of every stitch is like a little bit of faith in my baby. When she was born, I I ended up having a home birth for her on purpose. And that was also a big step in my trauma recovery. I didn't want to make that decision from a place of like flat out trauma response. I had a very good experience at my clinic in Boulder. I felt very safe and well held there. My trauma is associated with my hospital in Boston. By the way, your baby's going to die and we can't help you. Good luck. Right. Mm -hmm. That Mm -hmm. is my trauma. I knew that if I went into a hospital to have the baby, my nervous system would be off the wall, but I didn't want to make the decision from a place where my nervous system was off the wall. Mm -hmm. So at the end of my work with my trauma specialist, I made the decision in myself from a place that felt solid. No, you know what? Really, really, I do want to have this home birth. And if I have to transfer, there are like five hospitals within 10 minutes of my house and I will transfer. So I hired a home birth midwife in the last few weeks of, I think right around 36 weeks, actually, like right about the gestational anniversary. And um, I kept going in for blood draws and stuff just to keep the modern medicine piece on until the last minute. But I had her in my living room. And when I gave birth to her in this bath, Uh, I was sort of on my knees hanging over the side and she came out the back and they had told me, they coached me, you fall back, we'll pick her up between your legs and we'll Mm. place her on your chest. Mm. And they did. And when this baby was placed on my chest, she pushed herself up and like a little baby push up, push up, Mm. infant. And she looked me right in the eye. And then she put her head back down and rested. And I was Ah. like, oh my God, (laughs) she can support the weight of her head. She can Mm. focus her gaze. Yeah. She has enough strength to push up. These were three things that my other, my baby Laurel never would have done. There was no world in which she would have done that. Yeah. Yeah. And from that moment on, I could actually relax and to trust that my little, my little Lucia is okay. She was born Mm. right at dawn and um, Lucia means light. And so we named her for the light after darkness and being born at dawn. Yeah. It's beautiful. Every now and then I get the the privilege of working with someone one-on-one in the coaching setting. And often when women come to me, they they come with survival goals. Like the first round of goals is just like, it is so acutely painful. I just need some peace. Like, I don't know how I'm even going to survive if it stays heightened like this. And it can stay, it can stay heightened like that for a lot longer than you think, right? Like I would say that I started to feel normalcy around three years after my loss, that's a long time to long feel time. like you've got this cognitive load obsessing over yeah. grief, right? Yeah. We get them their piece. The piece, here's, the, I'm more than happy to give the secret, but it's, it's hard. The piece is right in the middle of the sadness. So you have to get all the way sad. Mm-hmm. And in the middle of being all the way sad, like something breaks open and that's where the piece is. Yeah. I did not feel brave enough to go back there every single time okay. I wanted a rest. But once you know it's there, no, it's terrifying. It's terrifying. I thought I was going to die the first time I let myself feel all the way sad. I literally thought I was going to have a heart attack and just drop dead on the sidewalk. But I didn't. I didn't. And the knowing the path to get back, once you know it's there, it's a little less scary. 
It's like when I was talking about the relationship, taking the fear of the divorce off. It's like, oh, I'm not going to die if I feel all the way sad. I know that because I've been there before. And I know that there's something worthwhile there. But if I don't want to go there today, that's okay. I help women with that when they're in their early grief. I would say like the first year when women come to me around one year, two years, that's what we're working on. And then what's so great is sometimes they go, they have their lives. When they come back to me, the goals are so different. The goals are empowerment goals. The goals are the goals of empowered women who are like ready to change the world. We get formed in the fire, right? We get forged in the fire and something like this is a hot, hot fire. So there's a lot of growth that happens. I hear a lot of women and I've felt myself like, I didn't ask for this. I don't want this growth. I don't want to be a better person and like (laughs) more empowered and strong. I just want my baby back. I wish we got to bargain like that. But seeing as we don't, accepting the gifts that are here, even if you would never have chosen them, it's Mm -hmm. worthwhile. As a love and sex coach, intimacy and sex coach, do you work with partners together or is it just one of the couple? Yes, I do. Um, It's one of my majors. So I was certified in one-on-one first and I've just got, I have all of my hours for couples coaching and I'm just submitting my portfolio right now. So I will be certified in this soon. But yes, I do work with couples as well. One of the things I really like about this modality, we do a lot of nervous system work, like somatic means through the body, right? So that's where we always start. How can you make your bodies when you, when your bodies are in the same room together, do they get tense and like armed for the same old fight again? Well, let's change that habit. Let's, let's practice relaxing. This is like the same thing I self-discovered with the touch. Oh, touch mm-hmm. makes me feel close. Let's do more of that. That's sure. where we start. And it doesn't have to be touch. There's like eye gazing. There are all these um, techniques that seem really, really simple. Like five minutes of eye gazing is a really long time to eye gaze, but it will mm-hmm. change the way you feel around your partner. Yeah. And then after we get the nervous systems relaxed, we work on communication. And it's basically like putting really tight boundaries around communication, not all your communication, just like 15 minutes of your day. We have communication with really tight boundaries around it. And it trains you to be able to hear each other without making it about you. So if my husband says something, instead of me getting reactive and assuming it's a dig at me, I can actually hear what he's saying. Yep. And then once we get to the point where we can hear each other, we start doing some processes like, for instance, the inner child is often running the show in a relationship, which is just not an appropriate place for an inner child. <laughs> Children should not be married right. to your partner. No. Right? <laughs> so we can do some processes around that to the, each partner gets to know their own inner landscape and their partner's inner landscape and like recognizing, oh, when did someone shift out of their adult mm-hmm. self and back into acting like a child? Well, mm-hmm. I don't have to like blame them for that. I can engage with the child and like we can put it in the woods having a lovely time climbing trees and then we can come back to adult conversations and then once we do that then we do the intimacy practices so it is a tantra inspired course curriculum some of the tantric tantric massages for example so there's like ancient tantra and we do some of that like some of the inner child stuff is like an ancient tantric meditation and then there's neo tantra and neo tantra is more sexually oriented and so we draw more from the neo tantra for the intimacy practices and they're beautiful they really particularly for couples who are coming out of a long dry spell like who stopped having sex for a couple of years yeah it can be really helpful to have like a lot of structure and to treat it like a meditation almost like reinventing what sex is in your relationship yeah. mm-hmm. so it's not about getting back to the way you were when you're 20 because you're not 20 i'm not 20 i'm 40 my my hormones are like dive bombing so yeah. What intimacy can I have now? And it turns out it can be better. But like, why not start over? It can be really exciting to discover each other from scratch. There's a lot of pleasure here, wherever you are. Even if you're grieving, there's a lot of pleasure to be had. I did have a question, the possibility of divorce. Did you guys actually talk about divorce? We never talked about it. It it felt like things were so bad that how else could it end for a little while? And I, I still have yet to talk, I've never talked to my husband about this, but just, I would be shocked if he hadn't had the same thoughts. I would be shocked if he hadn't had the same thoughts. I do observe in my support group that there are some couples who do divorce because mm-hmm. the pressures are just too high. Also, 
how someone acts under duress can show parts of them that you hadn't seen before that you don't like. So I always say relationships can survive this. Mine Mm -hmm. did, and it has proved worth the saving. It really has. I love my marriage. I love my husband. He's like a really good partner for me. But not every relationship is worth saving. And I do really trust people to know their own situation the best. I have seen some instances where abuse started happening in the wake of uh, a termination for medical reasons. Like all of a sudden, um, he's berating her for being a murderer. And like, that's not okay. That definitely... Yeah, that was not my situation, right? My husband and I still loved each other and we're still on the same page. We were just in different styles of grief that were hard, hard to reconcile day to day with each other. Any relationship has its weaknesses and any major stressor will put pressure on the weaknesses, right? Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. we all know that when people lose a child, like a little later down the line, when the child has been alive, we all know that that's like a huge, a huge pressure on the marriage and a lot of those couples divorce. Yeah. It is also, baby loss is also a huge pressure on a marriage and more than the average number of couples divorce. But also having a child with special needs That's is right. a stressor on the marriage and more mm-hmm. of them also end up divorcing. Mm-hmm. So like, once we really got that diagnosis, <laughs> <laughs> there was no avoiding the stress on the marriage. It was going to be yeah. there, whichever path yeah. we chose. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we talk about that a lot in our yeah. show. And the fact that sometimes you don't get told that before you're going to have a baby, or before you decide to have a baby, like your needs for the next two years as a couple and individually are going to be in the backseat. Mm-hmm. Yes. And how yes. do you how do you work through that together and be prepared for it? Come out stronger. Yeah. 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 It's so helpful there are times when you can't look at your like you just don't have the resources to look at your partner and see the good in them but when you do it is so helpful to take a moment and just stop and sort of celebrate it right I I don't know my husband planted most of the bulbs I ordered last fall and they're blooming now right so that happened last fall that I ordered a thousand bulbs for our new yard and mm-hmm. he did 750 of them and I did 250 right <laughs> maybe he did even more than that and now they're blooming. And to look at that and be like, huh, that's because my husband loves me. Well, it's a it's a mindset shift. You know, if mm-hmm. you are seeing the negative or if you're feeling the negative, you're just, that's all you're going to see. And you're going to yeah. find evidence to support that. So making that shift of I'm going to find the positive nuggets, even if they're teeny tiny, just to, to help that shift and that grow in that relationship. Yeah, and it doesn't have to be all the time. There are still yeah. times when you see the dishes in the sink and you can get mad as hell. Like that is still okay. It's gonna happen. You're not a failure if you get mad or even if you let it slip. But the, the incremental changes, a little less conflict, a little yeah. more celebration, Mm-hmm. You turn both those dials just like a tiny little tick and see yeah. how it adds up. It does add sure. up. Yeah, yeah. I told you I'd wash them tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> Instead, let those dishes sit in the sink and then cuddle and watch a show together. You yes. Know? You know what's wild that's fun. going what's wild that's going on in my life right now is that um you know, as I mentioned earlier, like I'm I'm not twenty seven anymore, like when we had our first mm-hmm. baby. I'm forty and I am more tired. I am getting more sleep, but I am more tired than I've been yeah. just because of the stage in life. Women are so all over the place. We are like oh waves on the sea. Yeah. <laughs> you you go get through puberty, you're like, good, I'm done. No, you are not. You are cycling every month until you get to perimenopause and like mm-hmm. your cycles are some random length now. And anyway, that's where I'm at. And so I have gotten really lazy around the house with the cleaning stuff. And now I've like dropped under my husband's threshold. And now he is the one holding the house together. Mm-hmm. And it's just wild. I didn't know this would happen. I didn't know it would shift like this. But mm-hmm. wherever you are in your lives, the only thing I can guarantee you is you're not going to be there forever. <laughs> yeah. yeah. See, that's what's going on. That's why I leave uh, clothes on the floor. Well, I hope it's not there forever. <laughs> 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 I had another question, but I'm afraid it's like going back, going back. Oh, no, wanna, go ahead. But go ahead. Um, I know your your first daughter was around two um, yes. when this happened. How did she navigate that? How did you have to navigate her own grief? Because even though she was two, I would imagine that there would be a process for her. Absolutely. No, this is a great question. I want to sort of present it from how she would have experienced it. So 
she would put her hand on my belly every day and she would say, there a baby inside, mama? Like, I feel like kicking, right? Every day because I was huge. And she's going off to daycare and her life is just sort of like ho-hum. So how she would have experienced it, all of a sudden, Nona and Baba are picking her up from daycare. All of a sudden, her parents aren't picking up her from daycare. All of a sudden, her parents disappear and she goes to live with Nona and Baba for a week. Her parents come home with a cowboy hat for her and like her mom is falling on the floor crying all the time, right? And we did tell her the baby died, which is Mm -hmm. true. I mean, the very simplest, if I had to just say this story in three words, it's my baby died. Like that's the story. All the rest of the details give you more detail, but that's the truth. She would still, because they don't have object, they don't, I guess they have object permanence, but not like, not the death thing. The death thing is not Mm -hmm. engaged at this age. She would still come and put her little hand on my belly every day. And Mm -hmm. she would say, mama, there a baby inside? And I would say, no, honey. Mm -hmm. And she would get confused. And and I would, I mean, she would be seeing me crying. I did not, I held it together as much as I could, which was not very much for my daughter. So at the end of the day, the way I feel it went was that I modeled healthy grief for my daughter. I did not. I was not stoic. Yep. I also okay. did not wail like an animal in front of her. But mm-hmm. I did cry in front of her a lot because I was sad. And she would try to cheer me up. She'd come and pat me and be like, it's okay, mama. And I'd be like, you know what? You know what Elsie is like? Some sads are big sad. I got a big sad. It's not your fault yep. I'm not cheering up. This is just a big mm-hmm. sad. and I'm going to be sad for a while. Mm-hmm. But we just told her the baby died because the baby was sick. Mm-hmm. So she mm-hmm. goes off to preschool. And I'm taking her to preschool every day, which is a tough place to be as a bereaved mom because everyone else is pregnant. And everyone was so kind, though. Like, really, I got a lot of support at that preschool, too. And then all of a sudden, someone else, someone else is getting a baby brother. And so they're talking about it every day at school. And they say, oh, what do babies do? And everyone's like, babies cry. Babies drink milk, right? And Elsie's like, babies die. Mm. Right? So. Yeah parent-teacher conference. Fortunately, some women get really shamed for something like that. They're like, you can't say that in a preschool. I, they would never like that. They, they had a conference so that we could best support Elsie. It, it's like, well, that is her experience of what happens mm-hmm. to babies, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. Then we go on vacation. <laughs> she had, had we, we do vaccinate our children and she had had all the normal shots up to that point, but she'd only had one, not two of the Varsala, the chicken pox. And we went to a country where that's not routine and she got the chicken pox. And so she's like covered in spots with a fever. She's throwing up. (laughs) She's like, what's wrong? I'm like, you're sick, honey. And she starts screaming. She starts screaming. And then that was how I learned, like, you have to, you have to give them a reason. Like, Mm -hmm. I'm sick. Sick is something that happens to healthy kids, too. Okay, she was sick in her brain, and we need our brains to live. Sesame Street actually has some great resources on difficult conversations with kids. I love and Sesame and, <laughs> and an old episode has someone die, and Big Bird is of an age where Big Bird like doesn't get it, like keeps mm-hmm. asking questions. That was helpful. I t- did mm-hmm. talk to a child psychologist. That was helpful. But really, this conversation is still happening. When you have mm-hmm. a child and you yeah. lose a baby, like. The conversation starts with, there's no baby, the baby's dead. Mm-hmm. And it continues for the rest of their life. I remember my friend and her mom. So my friend's mom had been pregnant at the same time that my mom was pregnant with me. There were three friends, and they were all pregnant due around the same time. And this friend, her baby died. Mm-hmm. And my mom and the other friend had healthy baby girls. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the baby who died is named Emily. And I remember my friend Elizabeth was saying, like, this will affect Elsie. Like, she will know about her sister. Yeah. And, you know, she's an adult telling me this. And her mom was actually the one who told me, Kate, you and your husband are not going to be in the same places at the same time in grief. Like, that's normal. I just need you to know that that's normal. You're going to you're going to visit the sad places at different times. Like when one's having a good day, the other's going to be having a bad day. That was very helpful. So Elsie now knows that I had an abortion. Lucia has heard me talk about this, but I don't think she really has put it together. Lucia forgets she has a sister who's not here. Elsie has never forgotten. On Laurel's birthday, I have the the girls choose what we do every year. Oh, Laurel's birthday's coming up. What do you think? She, what do you think we should do for her? 
right? Mm-hmm. That's fun. Mm-hmm. So there are two days a year when I sort of bring the rest of my family into remembering with me. One of them yeah. is Laurel's birthday in June, and the other one is Day of the Dead, October, mm-hmm. November, mm-hmm. where we make an altar and we just like decorate it for everyone we know and love who's gone, but including yeah. Laurel. Yeah, nice. I was going to ask you, how, how do you honor her now? So that's, yeah. that's great. Yeah, the, through that and also through my activism. I also honor yeah. her through my activism. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Oh, my gosh, Kate, this has been so great. I'm very grateful that you're you're here and talking about this and sharing your story. And um, I, I want to know, how can people find you for your oh, resources? Thank you. Well, if you are looking, if you've been through a termination for medical reasons, mother's health, baby's health, all, all are welcome. Uh, the support group I help run is called Ending a Wanted Pregnancy. It's on Facebook. It, we have a website. You have to go through the website, endingawantedpregnancy.com. If you don't mm-hmm. like Facebook, there's a really good Reddit group that I am around in, but don't lead, called TFMR underscore support. If you would like to work with me one-on-one for any reason, um, it can be baby loss related or not, my website is nightbloomcoaching.com, N-I-G-H-T-B-L-O-O-M-C-O-A-C-H-I-N-G.com. And for our listeners, we'll put that in our comments. Thank you for yeah. honoring us with this conversation and, and honoring your daughter as well. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. It was a pleasure to meet with you. And I, I love I love talking to couples about this because sometimes the dads just like get ignored, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I don't have my husband here because I know he doesn't want to be public. So I don't ask him to do things that I know he doesn't want to do. I certainly do see dads in my support group who do want to be recognized and part of the group. I just, these are, these are family. These are family situations. They're not just, they are certainly woman situations, but they are also family situations. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. (laughs) It's been such a pleasure to meet you both. And if you need me, you know where to find me. Yeah, sounds good. All right, and thanks for having your kitty join. Yeah. (laughs) It is what it is. She's this beautiful, she's this geriatric cat. She just, she likes, she likes me. She likes her lap, you know. Yeah, we had a geriatric cat who, you know, passed away a couple years ago, and then we got these two rowdy boys, and they could just care less about us. And we're like, love us. Be on our laps. And they're just like, (laughs) meh. cats yeah Uh, well it's Uh, so good to meet you both thank you so much for this take care have a good rest of the weekend Bye. bye bye Hey everyone, we hope you got something out of today's episode. Thanks so much for listening. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram and TikTok at Love After Lullabies. And if you and your partner are interested in being in the show, we'd love to have you. Email us at loveafterlullabies at gmail.com. And also, we would really appreciate a like, subscribe, and even a share would be amazing. Does she got burgers in her ears? Ha, 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 ha.